0: Good morning. Welcome to all of you. It's very humbling to be in front of this many people. (laughs) It really is. But uh, I'm excited to have a chance to um, to speak a couple things out of the Word of God this morning. And I'm grateful that the Lord gave you safe travels here. The the youth, the visitors that are here. And uh, we pray for uh, uh, safe travels for the rest of them that are showing up. And um, Somebody made a nice bulletin board back there about Youth Bible School. They had some statistics on it that I was looking at this morning. And uh, one of the things that caught my eye was that about two-thirds of the people to uh, to the the Youth Bible School this year are returning students. One-third are new to Bible School. And that's an exciting thing to me. Um, The message I have to share this morning really, the bulk of it comes from two verses in the Bible, but it's a very powerful uh, lesson and I'm hoping that it's an encouragement to you, especially youth, but to everyone, um, to to hold fast to the faith and practice that you have now and not to let it go, not to let it be eroded away by other people, the world, other people. Um, church standards of, at uh, other fellowships and things like that, but just to hang on to what you have. Most of you have been to um, Bible school before, so you have a lot of good teaching, a lot of good training, and, uh, and some of you are new to it. But when you leave this kind of environment that's saturated with good teaching and Scripture and, and all of that, and you go out into the world where we have jobs, we we do other things, we live lives, then um, you can find yourself being challenged about what you believe and and the standards that you hold to. So uh, I'm hoping that today can be an encouragement for you. That's kind of what this lesson is going to be about this morning. And I've kind of entitled it Fight the Good Fight, uh, copying Paul. Uh, I have fought a good fight, and he held fast to the end, and it was a fight for him. Even he had to struggle through uh, to not um, give in and, and, uh, and keep the faith. So uh, this inspiring story takes place in 2 Samuel, and if you want to turn there, I will be referencing that story quite a bit. I have some points to take from that. So I will read there in 2 Samuel chapter 23. One of of the inspiring parts of the scripture for me is to read about David's mighty men and some of the things that they did. It's just amazing. And uh, we don't fight with swords these days, but Kind of, we do. We have a sword that we fight with too, and when we fight our own battles. And uh, so, I'm going to read, probably starting in verse eight. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had: the Tecmanite that sat in the seat chief among the captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against eight hundred, whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were, were gone away, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto the sword, And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. And then it goes on to uh, speak of of, uh, more of David's mighty men. But the story I want to look at today and take some points uh, from is the story of Eliezer. Starting in verse 9 is where I'm going to be uh, uh, taking this from. It's a, just a brief story. It doesn't say much about him in the Scripture, but yet there's a lot said about him in here that we can take from and, and apply to our lives today as we fight to ha- hold, hold the ground that we feel is important. The standards of, of living our doctrinal beliefs and, and those, uh, those types of things that are challenged. first point I take from this story, if you look at there in verse 9... After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle. The Philistines, the enemy, is gathering together. That's point number one that I want to bring out. As we look around us today in the world and other churches Uh, other uh, mainline denominations and people that call themselves Christians, as we look around today, it seems that more and more the enemy is gathering itself together against the church, against Christianity, um, against anyone who dares to hold a testimony or a standard of some sort. Every time you hold a standard, somebody wants to challenge it. It doesn't really matter what it is. Um, it's, it's, um, It's challenged. So the enemy is gathering together. Everywhere in the world, more and more, there is a love for evil and a hatred for truth. It just so seems, when you look at the news, that that's the case. Uh, I'd like to, I'm going to turn to, if you want to, you may also, Isaiah 59, just to kind of highlight this point. Isaiah 59, we'll be reading in verse 15. I'll start in verse 14. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered, That there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. So, in this verse, my takeaway from Isaiah here is that truth faileth, okay? And anyone who would dare to hold a standard that sets them apart from evil becomes a prey to others around us, the enemy that is gathering. The enemy is gathering in our day. And we become a prey when we hold a standard. There is no judgment. As we look around us today, it seems more and more the enemy is gathering itself and, and, uh, and coming against truth. So that's point number one. The enemy is gathering from this story. Point number two from the story back in Second Samuel. The purpose of the gathering is battle. They're not just gathering. The enemy's not just gathering. They're gathering for the purpose of challenging us, of battling us. It says here, when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, they had a purpose. The enemy had a purpose for battle. In Isaiah 15, it says, they that turn from evil maketh himself a prey. They will be hated. They will be hunted, in a sense. The world thinks that it's strange that we don't enjoy the same things they do, that we don't allow ourselves to enjoy the same things they do. And they feel challenged if if we hold to any standard. standard, For any standard to be raised is sort of an infuriation or uh, sort of a a judgment of them uh, to the world. And they do not want... Let me say it this way. They not only want to be allowed to have their sin, the world around us, but they want you to approve of it. And they want you to participate in it if possible. That's what they want. They don't want you to just let them be their way. They want, they want to force you to approve it. We see that in the news that more and more sinful lifestyles are forcing themselves into our society, forcing the world to accept it and And even participate in it, and that's how aggressive they are, the enemy that's gathering for battle uh, for <clears throat> it says in Romans chapter one, the last verse in the, in Romans chapter one, uh kind of highlighting this point who The people who are sinning, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do they do these things, but they have pleasure in people that do them. They enjoy watching other people participate in the same sin that they want to participate in. So they not only want to be able to participate in this sin, but they want you to do it with them. So the world is coming against us to be accepted by us and to try to get us to participate with them and to lower our standards. Consider the force that is used to squash any voice or any group that would not approve of them. It's very aggressive in, in our world today. And maybe, maybe where you live, you don't experience it that much, but you probably will, okay? I know I have, and you probably will at some point, if you haven't already. They are ready to fight. That's point number two, the enemy that is gathering, is ready to fight. Point number three from Samuel 23, 2 Samuel 23, says, point number three I want to make is, Israel's army defies the enemy. So the enemy's gathered, they're gathered for battle, and now Israel's army, it says, defies the enemy. They try to stand up against them. Here it says, in uh, when they... Israel, when they defied the the Philistines that were gathered together for battle, um, the men of Israel were gone away. But the point is, initially, they're defying the enemy. They're standing up against them. There's lines of battle being drawn, okay? Um, On this point, I would say any church or any individual that is holding to Bible standards is standing up or defying the gathering enemy today. All right? It's not just us, but there are other churches that do, that do uh, stand up against that. Many of the churches around us do call sin, sin. They do say that God hates divorce or, or other kinds of sin. They do teach against sin. They do teach devotion to God. There are many churches that do that. They teach those things. All of those things are defying what the enemy wants right? It, that is a form of defying the enemy and defying uh, what the world wants. In this way, we would agree with a lot of what they say. They, in a sense, are fellow warriors on the field of battle, okay? They're, in, they, they're at least initially entering the battle with us, trying to hold standards uh, in this world, which is what the Bible's referencing that we're salt, when we're salt in the world, we're not, the standards we hold, the standards we profess are kind of holding back the world from just whole, fully going into chaos and anarchy because of, of the Christian standards that are still held in the world. All of these things defy the world and what they want. They don't like... Speaking of other churches that are holding standards too um, and defying the enemy, they don't like what the public school is teaching their children. They are appalled at what their children see on television. The immodesty, in practic- uh, the immodesty that they see at, at public pools outrages them, and when they when they say anything or worse, decide to withdraw their children from these influences, they are defying the enemy. There are other fellowships, other churches who who do see the problems with these things that I just mentioned, and in that way, when they when they want to do something about it or say something about it, they're defying the enemy. Point number four. Take note in here that even though there's a whole army that's defying the enemy, what happens to them? In this verse here, says. I lost my place. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to read starting in verse nine again. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo the Ehohite, one of the three mighty men of, with David. When they Israel defied the Philistines that were gathered together there to battle, they defied him, and the men of Israel were gone away. They right away left the field of battle, and that's that's point number four in this story. The enemy was so intimidating that Israel's army left or fled the field of battle. Okay? Basically, the whole army left the field of battle. Okay, these same churches and Christians that defy the enemy a lot of times flee the field when it comes to applying biblical truths or standards to people's lives. They say one thing, but when it comes to applying it to people's lives, they they become overwhelmed. Uh, and, and they don't hold to those standards. They flee the field. The enemy is so intimidating that many churches retreat and will find ways to accept alternative uh, lifestyles in their church. They do in many of the mainline churches. They do. They have fallen back. They tried to hold a standard and they have fled the field. They're not fighting that fight anymore. They do not hold the Bible standards of dress. They don't, they don't uh, call rock music the devil's music anymore. And as a result, uh, Many places have accepted worldly music into the church, the actual church service. And so they have defied the enemy, but they have fled the field. They have fled the field. The enemy is so numerous uh, in in the population that most churches have retreated from the standard of of disallowing remarriage after divorce. Uh, Churches become powerless to preach against these things, because of their retreat, um, you can't fight the enemy if you've, al- if you've left the field. They have lost their saber and they're good for nothing but to be trampled on by the same enemy that they tried to, um, tried to uh, uh, hold against. So they lose their power when they've left the field. Have you ever felt like you're the only one left on the field? Like, where did they go? I thought they were going to hold that standard. You know, another church, another main denomination, another a, another fellowship, another family member, another something. It's like more and more people are just caving into and accepting things that before we didn't accept. And sometimes you feel like you're the only one left on the field. It's possible, if you think about this, if you picture the battlefield, and Eliezer's there, the whole army of Israel's there, and there's the gathering enemy And imagining everybody, retreat! I mean, they're running off the field. Maybe some of them said things to Eliezer while he was there, you know, come with us, leave the field. Um, You know, why are you standing there? This this is unreasonable. Um, When they left, Eliezer was forced to a point of decision. Okay? The whole army is leaving the field. A whole army of the enemy is in front of him, and he has to make a choice. And that's what he's forced to do here at this point. He's forced to a point of decision, and that's where we are too. Other denominations are caving in on this doctrinal issue or that doctrinal issue. And if we're the only one left on the field, we're we have to make a choice. You know, is this worth standing? What do I really believe? What do I really believe? Is this, it's, it's one thing to face an enemy when you have a whole army with you. It's a whole different level of responsibility to face an enemy when everyone else has left your cause. It's a whole different level of uh, responsibility. Suddenly you're not fighting with a group of people. You, you're the one making the decision. Is this worth the fight? Do I really believe this? Do I hold to this? Because when others cave in and go away, it's easy for doubt to seep in. Say, well, is this really the way? Is this really something I should hold to? Do I really believe this? Because almost no one else does. Sometimes it seems like that. Point number five. So Eliezer was was brought to that point of decision. And Eliezer arose, it says in here. In verse 10, he arose. He arose and smote the Philistines. So he made the choice that he was supposed to stay there and fight. This is a fight that he decided to go, even if no one else would, even if no one else would. Something in him believed that this, was ground, this ground must be held, and we have to come to that too. Even if it's just you, you know, this ground must be held. We can't give in on this or that. And when I say just you, it might be just you. It might be just your family, or it might be just your church in a community. But, you know, if you're the only one or ones left, you know, you have, you have to make that decision. Are you going to hold this ground? Is it something that you believe in? He believed that it was ground that he must hold. Eliezer did. Even if no one else will stand with him, he will not let the enemy pass. He will not. They will have to destroy him first. He made a decision. And like it says in other places in Scripture, referring to Christ, as He set His face like a flint, I imagine that's kind of what what He did. It's like, I'm doing this. I'm not giving up. And just having that face of determination. He didn't allow for other options. He had to stand against His enemy. He didn't have a plan B. He wasn't going to retreat. Eliezer arose. We need to say the same thing today. Even though most of the church has retreated, the church of the world, the, the the larger church has retreated on some of these on some major issues, the Bible hasn't changed, even if they did. The Bible hasn't changed, and that's what you need to consider. There is a cause, and if we dare to take on the identity with Christ, we must hold that ground. So if we call ourselves Christians and we say we believe the Bible, we need to believe it even when somebody else says it doesn't mean what it says anymore. Are we going to arise saying yes will cost? It cost Eliezer. I'm sure that he didn't know of a surety that he was going to live through that, but he decided that was a stand he was going to take and uh and so he decided to and it cost and it will for us too all who live godly in christ jesus shall suffer persecution point number six eliezer engaged the enemy by himself so when everybody else left after defying the philistines they that were gathered together to battle The men of Israel were gone away, and he arose and smote the Philistines. And he did it by himself. He did it by himself. This is where true faith is manifested or proven. This is where we prove it. Why do I believe what I believe? Is a good question to ask yourself. Why do I believe it? Do I believe it because someone else believes it? Do I believe it's important to dress modestly because somebody else believes that? Do I believe it's important to wear the covering because somebody else believes that? Do I believe it's important to, to, to not get divorced and remarried because somebody else believes that? Or, is that? or do I believe it because it says it in the Bible, and I know it, and I know it's wrong? Or I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Do I believe what I believe because someone else believes it? If my faith and practice is tied to what other people believe, I will change when they do. I will change when they do. I will retreat when they do. I will And I will fight when they do. But, you know, it's good. It's good sometimes. I mean, if you're influenced by other people, sometimes that works for good because if they make a stand, you stand with them. But... You don't want to be tied, you want it to be tied to your heart that you believe what you believe because you know what God wants, because you, l- you know what it says in the Bible, not because somebody else believes I believe what I believe because I know it's in the Bible, not because Brother Elvin believes it, and he told me that's what I should believe. Because if Brother Elvin changes his mind, it'll get my attention. But unless he can back it up in Scripture... I'm not going to change with them or anybody else. And what happens in, in a lot of places is the leaderships in their churches will say, you know, we're okay with this issue now. We're going to start accepting this. And people in the church will say, well, our elders said it's okay, so I'm going along with what they say. And that's not a good place to be in. It's not solid ground. What, why do you believe what you believe? What if your pastor retreats from something that he said or preached or encouraged or has fought for in the past? Do you change with him without a sound biblical explanation? What if your husband retreats? What if your wife does? What if your dad changes his standards or your friends? If your faith is tied to someone else and is not grounded in the Bible, then you won't stay when they retreat. You won't be Eliezer. Okay? Truly, What is the basis for your faith and practice? And when you decide to engage, when you decide, this is where I'm I'm going to stand. I am not backing out from this. You then become the target of all the enemy's strength. If everybody else leaves the field, you become the target. They can now focus all of their energy on you and, not only that, you become conspicuous to the people who are retreating. Why aren't you, <laughs> why aren't you retreating? Why aren't you, why aren't you uh, lining up with the standards that most of normal Christianity is today? You become conspicuous to the other retreaters. It may, it may be pricking their conscience. When you hold a standard that they don't anymore. Point number seven Eliezer battled to exhaustion. It says in here, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. I don't know how many people he had to fight, but one of the other mighty men in David's inner circle says he took out 800 in one battle. He may have had the army, He might not have been the only one on the field at that time, but he took out eight hundred men. Eight hundred—that's that's endurance. And and it doesn't say, but it does say he took on a whole army. Um, in in this uh, battle, and he won by himself. Eliezer battled to exhaustion. The Bible says, "Be not weary in well doing, for in due season ye shall reap." If you don't give up, if we faint not. So, in whatever standard you're trying to hold to, whatever standard's being challenged in your life, being questioned by other people, being questioned in your own mind because of what other people have done or changed or whatever, um, you know, don't give up. Don't give up if you know what the Bible says about an issue. Don't give in to that. There will be a time when you will benefit from that you will reap the benefits of that don't be tired of doing that don't be tired even when people challenge you over and over and over again and call you a legalist again and all of that and here we go again the same thing again it never ends sometimes the battle is exhausting enough when you have an army with you but is much more exhausting when the enemy can focus all its energy and resources resources on you This kind of battle can only be won with God's supernatural support and enabling. It's true. There's no way one guy could take on a whole army without God having been there and fighting that battle with him. And it's the same for us. You better be, if you're you're going to hold standards, you better be close to God. (laughs) You can't do it on your own. You will give up. You will wear down. Point number eight from the story. Eliezer fought with a sword. It says, He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. So obviously he was using a sword. He wasn't shooting a bow and arrow. He wasn't throwing hand grenades. He uh, was using a sword. His sword was his only hope to survive. His only protection, his only confidence I need to qualify that except that he knew he was right and I'm sure he was confident that God was fighting with him. But as far as what he had to fight with, his sword was his survival, his protection, his confidence. No sword. If he didn't have a sword in that battle, he had a lost cause. Okay? If he doesn't have a sword, it's going to be a quick defeat of him. If he doesn't have a sword, he is an empty threat to the enemy if he doesn't have a sword his effort is useless it's useless effort and we have a sword too in our fight we have a sword and if you let go of that sword you have a lost cause if you're not allowed to quote scripture if you're not allowed to lean on scripture for what you believe you have a lost cause and you will you will lose you will be defeated You will be an empty threat to people if you can't use your sword. Swords are only useful if you have the skill and experience in using it. Are we practicing with ours? Do we have skill using our sword? Do we have experience using our sword? Without skill and experience, our sword doesn't do us much good. Remember that David... At one time, he refused to use Saul's sword because he lacked the skill and experience using it. He knew how to use a slingshot, but he did not know how to use a sword, so he refused to go into battle using it until he was experienced. Later on in his life, he had experience and skill using a sword, and I'm sure he fought with it. But he wouldn't use Saul's that day because He didn't have the skill and experience using it. We need to have skill and experience using the sword that we have available to us, or we won't be able to fight the enemy effectively either. A sword is an intimate weapon, very intimate weapon. You have to be almost face-to-face with an enemy to be effective with it. It's not like a bow and arrow or a sniper rifle or something that you can take out somebody, an enemy out from a long distance away. If you're fighting with a sword, It's a face-to-face battle. Just like our sword is, it's most effective face-to-face with others. Most of the time, the sword is applied to an enemy one at a time in the same way salvation usually takes place one soul at a time. So you must be skilled with your, your sword, but a sword is used in close quarters, and that's... That's something I want you to consider, as you consider how we have to use ours. We have to be able to face people, face to face, as we're as we're being challenged, or we're trying to work with somebody or talk to somebody. It's it's a face to face. You see the person's expressions when when you're applying the sword, in in that close uh, in that kind of a, a battle. Eliezer fought with a sword. Point eight. Point number nine from this story, a lot of points for two verses. Point number nine, Eliezer's hand was cramped around the sword. It says, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto the sword. And if you you look at what clave means, I mean, it's like he was using that sword so much. And it was so much his life and his survival in that battle. And, he, and it couldn't have happened in five minutes. That had to take a long time. And for him to be fighting and, and surviving with a sword for that long, his hand is gripping onto that thing so long that when he's done, it's, it's, he can't barely pry his fingers out. It's clave. It's stuck onto that, glued onto that handle. And that's how we need to hang on to the Word of God. Okay, People are trying to disarm us in this world, okay? You quote a scripture to somebody and they might say, that's Old Testament. What they're trying to do is disarm you of two-thirds of your Bible if they discredit a, uh, a scripture just because it's Old Testament. If I can't use the Old Testament, that's, that's, a, lot of, of, uh, that's a lot of ammunition they just took away okay there's a lot of uh, of uh, support that they've taken away in this world they try to take away creation the genesis book the story of creation if they are successful doing that the rest of the of the scripture and the credibility of the rest of the bible crumbles and falls away with it hang on to your sword his sword was cramped to his hand because he used it so much why would why would he have to hang on to it so tightly? Because it's his life. He had to hang on to that sword like he was uh, dangling off a cliff on a rope. He had to hang on to it. It was his life. Okay, And we need to consider our sword the same way. We can't hold on to it loosely. We can't let people take parts of it away. Oh, that part of the scripture is just cultural. It doesn't apply to today. They're trying to disarm you. Trying to get you to loosen your grip. On your sword, you must be sober. You must be vigilant. You must be alert because the enemy is looking for a weakness. They don't need you to drop the sword entirely. They just need you to rele- re- to relax your grip a little bit, okay? And they start chipping away at parts of the scripture and discrediting this part and that part, and pretty soon. You can live just about how much you want, you like to as long as you uh, had some sort of profession of uh, salvation. Point number 10. God worked a great victory through Eliezer's faithfulness. Says in here, He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Through faith, he wrought a a, a victory through his faithfulness. um, Just kind of like David faced Goliath with faith and confidence in God. Eliezer did the same thing. God worked through those willing vessels to overcome what was uh, an enemy that looked invincible. You can wish to do all sorts of wonderful things, but the key to your success is knowing that what you're fighting for is truly God's will. Okay? So whatever arguments people bring against you on this issue or that issue, and they can use all kinds of of, uh, clever arguments that that make them sound like lawyers, in, in a sense. We see the example in Jesus, how people question him and try to catch him and trip him up in his words and things. But... No matter what they bring against you in that way, always go back and ground yourself in, well, it still says this here. And I know that a normal reading of this scripture, it means what it says there, no matter how you twist the words and make it say what you want it to say. And so you've got to hold on to that. Fight with the confidence of knowing that, that, that um That God will work out a great victory if we don't stop pressing in. Know what God's will is from the Bible, and that if you're fighting and taking a stand for what's God's will, then it's really God's fight, and He will take care of it. Another point. I'm embarrassed how many points there are, so I'm going to stop saying the number. Uh, Another point in here is that the rest of Israel's army benefited from Eliezer's stand. A good sermon, I've been told, has three points, so you can remember them, and I have 13. All right, uh, 2 Samuel 23 here. Uh, The rest of Israel's army benefited from Eliezer's stand. It says here in verse 10 that uh, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave into the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. The people returned after him. See, when a man takes a stand for God, and God honors it with a victory, everyone benefits. Everyone around him benefits from the reprieve uh, of the enemy's threat. The thing is, the army of Israel left the field. Eliezer stayed there. When the Israel left, there was a whole army ready to defy them, okay? Ready to come against them. When they came back after Eliezer's effort, the fighting was all done. It's all done. They benefited from that. They didn't have to do the fighting anymore. Eliezer did it. He took the stand, and they all benefited from it in that way. Now, I know the way I've been talking about this almost almost seems derogatory toward the rest of the army of Israel. But the army of Israel, if you read the rest of this chapter, David's army was filled with valiant and courageous men. They weren't cowards by, by nature. They were very courageous. And this one killed 800 in one shot. That one did 600. And, and the person in the third tier of his uh, uh, army, uh, inner circles, you know, killed 300. Oh, he only killed 300 in one fight. They were valiant men. The point is that, that David had many mighty men, and, and they're chronicled in here and in other places in the Scripture. So they weren't cowards um, that that fled the field. It's just that um, they legitimately were overwhelmed with the fight, as humans can get. Um, if you look at just this past, uh, passage, I thought about drawing drawing it on board, but There's, uh, I will, (laughs) there's David right here. David had, can I spell? I'm getting ahead of myself. David, David had uh, a a, um, security, (laughs) secret service, that's what I wanted to say. David had a secret service that rivals the United States, as far as I'm concerned. But he had an inner circle of three guys. All of them were known to have killed hundreds of men in battle, some of them by themselves. Eliezer was one of these guys. He's right in here. I'm not going to try to spell. Then there was another circle. Three more guys there. One was the captain of his guard. One was the captain of uh, the other three or whatever and so he had an inner circle and an outer circle, and then he had another circle out here filled with 30 of his, the 30 mighty men. And it says this one, he did some great things, but he wasn't quite as great as one of the inner circle of the three and so on. So he had this this whole protection. I guess the point of this is David's, David's army was, they weren't cowards, but they were overwhelmed in this fight for some reason. And uh, so... Uh, uh, they, they left the field when it was legitimately uh, um, a fearful fight. Probably another benefit that these men received from Eliezer's uh, fight was inspiration and a renewed understanding of waxing valiant in the fight. So when somebody takes a stand, even if everybody else leaves, there's, uh, the, the, the people not only benefit from the fact that the battle was fought for them, but they also benefit by being inspired. By seeing how somebody stood up uh, and and how God honored that. They probably, probably another benefit, um, you can imagine that the next time they were engaging the enemy, they remembered how Eliezer fought. And it probably helped them, okay, whenever you see an example of something like that. There are many overwhelmed Christian soldiers today who need to see a modern Eleazar in action holding his ground. This inspires other people to rise up. It does, when you see something like that. And one example that I can think of today, just uh, uh, a modern ministry, uh, I think of Ken Ham and his creation science ministry, Answers in Genesis. And I've just, uh, you know, we homeschool our children too, and and just amazing... um, how they have stood up to modern science's theory of evolution and they've been cleaving to the Word of God in Genesis and just holding to the fact that that is the the, the, the true Word of God, that it happened that way, the way it says in Genesis. And they have held to that when many other people and um, in, in many other churches have even started to adopt the idea of evolution. And uh, they systematically dismantle dismantle the theory of evolution and its fallacies in in such a way that it almost makes you look like a fool to believe in creation or in uh, in evolution and it's been it was such a blessing to go through and study some some of those things and and how they they tie uh, different aspects of um, of what evolution's trying to cr- uh, people are trying to credit evolution with and showing how it does fit into scripture and how it can fit into uh, the natural history that the Lord has uh, uh, had uh, made since creation. Uh, they did this while many churches were shamefully retreating and, and uh, believing that bi- uh, that biblical creation story was not uh, exact. Uh, we all, everyone else, whether we were misled by cre- uh, evolution or not, we all have benefited from their research and in su- their in their battle. And God worked uh, a gr- and is working a great victory over, over the enemy that's trying to push God out of our society. And that's just, I, I, I see that group and that effort as a modern example of an Eliezer that's, that stood up and fought when a lot of other people left the field. And they really have, they've been blessed. I mean, they have, they have uh, been very successful at at uh, encouraging Christians um, with and giving them good um, evidence, <laughs> evidence in, and uh, arguments for why it's logical to believe. It's more logical to believe in, in uh, God than it is evolution. And uh, anyway, so the rest of Israel's army benefited from Eliezer's stand. No one returned to the field until the battle was over, says, and the people returned after him only to spoil, only to benefit. They got to spoil the, the take the spoils and take all the things that were left all the, the goodies from the, uh, from the battle uh, after Eliezer had, had fought the battle. Often people don't enter the fight, uh, will not enter a fight that they think they'll lose okay? Naturally, we don't want to be associated with losing. Consequently, many would rather not fight at all than fight and lose. I don't fully understand how this uh, all works, but um, once once a person retreats from a battlefield, it's a lot harder to go back. It's a lot harder to go back and fight that battle again and gain that ground again. It just is. And I can tell you from personal experience that's true. In, in my life, things that I've caved on, it's hard to go back and take that ground. It really is. It's a harder fight than it was initially. Don't be shocked by people who, after the fight, congratulate you on how well you did, but they weren't willing to stand with you during the engagement. It does happen. Um... Uh, an example of that is uh, for me personally is um, when I was still attending a, a Baptist church uh, we did a we were doing a bible study the associate pastor was doing a Bible study on first Corinthians and we got to chapter eleven and that day, I um, challenged him about why we don 't observe the the headship order covering anymore in the church, and I took all the arrows and <laughs> And we we engaged the conversation, and um, a lot of people weren't happy about that. But afterward, when all of the dust settled, I had two brothers that come up to me at different times, kind of like this. I agree with you. I think we're missing something by not observing that. But they weren't there when we were having the engagement, uh, the discussion, Anyway, no one returned to the field until the battle was over. And then the last point that I wanted to bring, Eliezer received special recognition and position from his stand. Um, He is considered one of the three of the inner, inner circle of David's mighty men. The fight is worth fighting because there is a cause. David said before he went out to uh, fight fight uh, Goliath. Is there not a cause? Yes, there was a reward that was proposed, but that's not what David was fighting for. David was fighting because there was a cause, a standard. You know, somebody was defying the living God and he felt that that was a fight worth fighting. Eliezer had a cause and he fought for it, not knowing the notoriety that he would attain afterwards, but he fought for that. God does reward His faithful servants. Just a few takeaways I want to share with you in conclusion. Cleave to the Bible. Cleave to the Bible. Don't let people disarm you on that. Hang on. Disarmed Christians sin. If you don't believe it, Psalms 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. So I kind of take it to mean that if I'm not, if I don't have God's word in my heart, I'm probably going to sin. I'm going going to be more likely to to go into sin. God's word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Do you have a sword? Just takeaways here. Do you have the sword? The sword. Are you practiced and skilled in its use? And if you do have the sword, have you relaxed your grip on it? Do you have a grip on the sword that experiences some cramps? Or have you been disarmed? If someone took away your Bible today, would you be disarmed? Or would you still have a lot of it? One final thought. Kind of an illustration of how important a doctrine can be to hold, okay? Uh, I have many doctrines personally that I that I hold to, as you do, and they seem to get challenged periodically, from from one degree to another. And the doctrines, di- doctrines, uh, the doctrines that differ most from uh, modern Christianity have, for the most part, a common thread. Okay, that deal with issues of obedience. There is one doctrine that drives much of what I believe and practice. And this same doctrine is a pillar upon which most of my other doctrines hinge on. That is that I believe in the conditional nature of eternal security. I believe that obedience is an integral part of our faith. And as I look at all the other doctrines that I believe about dressing, how we dress the covering, what God's uh, stand is on divorce and remarriage, and all those things, if you could disarm me on that one doctrine of the importance of obedience, then most of the others would eventually fall away too. So I just—I present that to you just as uh, an example of how important a doctrine is. That one, I will stand on. I I stand on how important it is to believe. If you take that away from me, a lot of what I believe falls away. And uh, and so, that's just an example. (laughs) May the Lord add his blessings.